Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michelle Carlo. We too had events that we look forward to each spring. Kill Whitey Day and Kill Black and Puerto Rican Day. And every year, I got my ass kicked on both. That and more. But before that, I just want to remind you that Risk is now looking for stories for our Halloween episode and our December holidays episode, especially if you live near New York or Los Angeles and might want to get up on stage at our New York show or our Los Angeles show and share a story like that. But even if you're not in one of those cities, if you have a scary story, a horror movie kind of true story, you know, that would work for our Halloween episode, ghost stories, nightmares, uh, encounters with dangerous knife-wielding maniacs, bad drug trips, whatever it might be, Or if you have an appropriate story that takes place during Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah or New Year's Eve, you know, around about that time, those could be happy, sad, strange stories, but set during the holidays. Just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions, and everything you need to know about how to pitch us is right there on that page. Also, Today's show is supported by Canna Pet. Go to canna-pet.com and use the code RISK at the checkout for 50% off your order. Everyone knows that dogs are a man's best friend. So what if I told you that you could make your best bud's life even better? That's where Canna Pet comes in. From tasty biscuits to oil and capsules, Canapet's all-natural and organic CBD pet supplements are your go-to if your pet is suffering from pain, allergies, cancer, anxiety, or seizures. I know what you're thinking. Is this pot for pets? Canapet is made from industrial hemp, not marijuana. This means it contains CBD, not THC. So it won't get your pet high. Actually, there are zero psychoactive effects. The product is fully legal and vet recommended for dogs, cats, horses, and other animals. Canapet is a holistic alternative to pharmaceuticals and no prescription is needed to purchase. You can order online at canna pet.com with the code risk for 50% off. For more information, go to canna-pet.com. That's C-A-N-N-A-pet.com. And remember the code risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the electric peanut butter company behind me now that that name reminds me of the name that my little sister and i had for our band when i was about eight years old we were the pickle gang 
but this is the Electric Peanut Butter Company. Listen, if you want to hear the greatest song ever made about the subject of peanut butter, look up, go, stop right now. Go to YouTube and look up Peanut Butter by Keyboard Kathy. You will be so happy you did. We are calling this week's episode First Impressions. These are three stories of situations where someone sort of prejudged who they might be dealing with and then got a more complete understanding. Now, listen, I, I, I'm so excited about this. I just have to talk about it. I, I, just today, we finally finished the casting for the body storytelling slash risk show that will be happening at the Bell House in Brooklyn on September 26th. Man, we got a lot of incredible pitches. We've had to tell a lot of people, listen, maybe we can have you on the show later. Maybe we can do a radio style story, you know, looking for other options to get some of these other pitches in there because we got so much great stuff. The cast that we put together is just spectacular. First of all, Dixie De La Tour, who is a favorite of everyone's, you know, she's been on the show many times. She is the host of Body Storytelling in San Francisco, and she'll be in town in New York to co-host this evening with me. Also, Melina Williams-Haas, who told the story, one of our most famous stories ever, the episode called Slave. Melina is just one of everyone's favorites. Uh, Dick Wound, who is the host or co-host of the Off the Cuffs podcast. Corinne Fisher, who is the co-host of Guys We Fucked, one of the biggest podcasts out there. It's just going to be a spectacular show. And you can always find out what's coming up next if you go to risk-show.com slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the fabulous Michelle Carlo, who is the author of the memoir Fish Out of Agua. Michelle's told lots of great stories for risk. You can find her at michellecarlo.com. That's Michelle with one L. But before that, a story that was shared the last time that Risk was in Vancouver. It was kind of a kooky show that night because they had us in a church and there was a huge and very loud AA meeting going on right downstairs. <laughs> it's a strange combination of things going on in that building. This story in particular was a unique one to be shared up by that tabernacle. <laughs> this is Catherine Wood right now with a story we call Perfect Stranger. Hi, everyone. After spending years 22 through 27 with a man I thought I loved so much, I was alone. My confidence took such a dive. It took me a while to find my feet and get back on track. But that's not what this story is about tonight. This story is about how everything in my life changed one afternoon in July. I was sitting at the pool with my friends, having a couple of drinks, 
sharing stories about my dating life now that I was newly single. And I remember saying, I'm meeting a lot of nice guys. They take me out for dinner and drinks, but inevitably, everything ends at the end of the night with a nice kiss on the cheek and a, it's nice to meet you. You know, thanks for coming out. I'm looking for a relationship right now. And immediately I thought to myself, I have to get far, far, far away. I really wasn't ready for another relationship. I spent five years with someone. I really wanted one thing. I wanted to get fucked. And so here I am regaling my friends with the most vanilla stories I can possibly imagine about how someone walked me to my door. And I'm done. I'm so done. I'm so frustrated. I said, how hard is it for a girl to just get banged? My friends being very good friends that they are said, you know, it's not actually that hard. You're kind of on the other side of the supply demand chain. You're like, you're doing okay. And so after this realization, about 30 minutes later, I went to my good friend, the internet, and I put up a dating profile. It was a very simple dating profile. It said, newly single woman wants to explore her submissive side. No sleepovers, no problem. (laughs) Didn't have a hard time getting requests. (laughs) Now that I'm telling this story today, I wonder why. Why was that the thing I really needed after five years with probably the most boring, vanilla, selfish son of a bitch I've ever been with? And now that I think about it, there's this like beautiful montage that plays through my head of every night he came home and went, hey babe, you gonna suck my dick tonight? (laughs) And I just can't begin to tell you how out of the rest of my body that's completely sweating, I'm just very dry at the thought of that. (laughs) Because there's one way to really romance a woman, it's ask her to suck your dick. (laughs) And so, You know, I'd been single for a while. I've been watching far too much pornography where people fuck at really impossible angles. And women come really quickly to penises that are far too big. Like nothing about that is comfortable. I was ready not to open my heart, but maybe a few other things. Like maybe like one, two, maybe like three other things. And so I was embracing this world of like trying out online hookups. I got this really interesting message, maybe about three or four weeks into the whole escapade. And he said, when you say explore your submissive side, what do you mean? This is the kind of thing where specifics matter. I took a stop. Every other message had been like, hey babe, wanna see my dick? Like just every other message had had nothing to do with me and what I wanted. And after a few back and forth messages, he presented me with two options for how we could meet for the first time. The first option, he gave me a list of places and he said, on this day at this time, I'll see you move between these places. You'll wear a dress. Panties, but maybe not. I'd prefer if you didn't. I'll find you at one of these places. We'll find a slightly more private place. 
and I'll fuck you and have my way with you. I thought, oh. (sighs) 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 Okay. I'm curious. Then he gave me option number two. At 11 a.m. on a Monday, I'd be showered and naked in my house. He would come by, buzz the front door. I would let him in. And in the time it took him to come from the outside to the upstairs of my apartment, I would walk to my bedroom, blindfold myself, and lie naked on the bed. He suggested that he might bind me or tie me up if it was of interest, and that any request that started with please might be honored. He would fuck me until he was done, and afterwards, he would take the blindfold off and I could get to know him. My adrenaline was flying through my body. My hands were sweatier than they are now. And my stomach locked into a knot so impossibly complex it took over an hour before it started to release. I had a flood of questions that ran through my brain like, oh my God, what kind of person wants to show up at my house and fuck me and then leave? What kind of person am I for wanting this or being even willing to entertain the idea of it? How much danger am I about to get myself in? Three weeks back, I'd been complaining with my friends at the pool about how I couldn't get more than a good night kiss on the cheek, and now a stranger wants to show up at my house. Like, it was a little bit of an impossibly quick turnaround time that I couldn't possibly fathom. And so obviously, when weighing option one or option two, I chose option two. address a very important part of option two, and that is what I'm going to call the danger factor, or the cold case files version of the danger factor, because as I started to like type out my response, Bill Curtis's voice from cold case files on A&E, true crime, started to go through my mind of like, secretly we found the man 25 years later. It was thanks to a fiber and it turned out to be a truck driver moving through town. That like I would inevitably get murdered, cut up into many little pieces, scattered around my own apartment, and then there'd be this big question of like, what happened to Catherine? Until 25 years later when some new miraculous scientific technology could be like, that guy, it was that guy. He fucked her and then he left. The danger part wasn't lost on me, but I was compelled to say yes for a reason. I'm even still unsure today about. And in preparing for the show, I really started to dig and find that and ask myself, you know, years later, why? Why out of all the things you could have done with yourself on, at 11 a.m. on a Monday, were you not like, mm, coffee, that could be nice, or uh, sex with a stranger in a blindfold? Uh, option two. I was at a point in my life where Not only did I crave a kind of obvious adventure that comes from thrilling sex, but I wanted to test my limits, to test how well I could weather the storm. I had been emotionally devastated with my confidence shattered 
a few months before and thought, well, what's the best way to propel myself forward? Let's actually just see. Let's find those limits. Let's try and weather the storm that you can best create because there's no way you'll be able to change the storm. You'll just have to figure out how to navigate through it. And there was something different about him. There was something about his approach. The questions that he asked me in all of the messages had nothing to do with him or his interests. Everything was about what I wanted. And this was the very first time that question had ever really been asked of me. And there was a formality in his tone. I never thought diction would matter so much to a woman, but when you're sexting me, that and the Oxford comma is more likely to get you. Now, the Oxford comma is more likely to get you the best blowjob you've had in a long time. Enthusiasm, am I right? Um, Finally, the day arrived. And I spent most of the morning, like, showering, doing unnecessary amounts of hair removal, like, putting on way too much makeup for a face that was going to get covered. And I just have this distinct memory of standing right outside my fan, like, desperately trying to, like, dry off all the sweat that was accumulating from nerves. And by the time, like, 11.56 was rolling around, I was just like, oh, God, please make it over, please, I can't handle this stress anymore. Before I knew it, the clock changed, and the phone went off. I didn't say anything. I just picked up the phone. I buzzed him in. I unlocked the door. I walked into my bedroom, and I put a blindfold on, and I lay down. My stomach went numb, and I felt like I couldn't breathe. I heard the door swing open, and then I heard it swing shut. I heard the bolt click, and I heard the sound of footsteps on the wood floor through my apartment. His hand slid across my bedroom door, and he pushed it open, and he said hello to me for the first time. I couldn't really muster a lot of the words to respond, but then he padded over to me, and I felt his hand on the bottom of my foot. It was soft and warm, and I could finally take a deep breath. There was something about the pressure that he put on my foot that made me feel safe, and I can't explain it. There was a tinder in his voice that made me feel safe. I heard the metal clank of his belt buckle and his jeans, and then I heard them hit the floor. His shirt came off, and he got onto the bed and kissed me once. For the whole rest of the time we were trying to explore each other's bodies, I could only ever tell if he was enjoying himself by the sound of his breath. And then I heard the crinkle of a condom wrapper, and I knew things were going to get serious. By the time he entered me, I was so happy, and I felt such an immense amount of relief. My hips met his. We hit this kind of rhythm and momentum that only comes when you're truly listening to the other person's body. And just as the pace started to quicken and I could hear his breath get faster and faster, I felt his hands at my temples and he pushed the blindfold off before he was done. I blinked. I could hardly see the light from my bedroom window hurt my eyes. 
took me a few minutes to adjust. And I looked into the eyes, these dark brown, warm brown, kind brown eyes of the man that was fucking me. By the time we were done, there was this like really awkward conversation. This like, well, hi, nice to meet you. (laughs) He got up and tried to find his way to the bathroom and from the distance I heard, is there a light for the bathroom? Above the sink, doesn't really make sense on the wall there. I put out fresh towels. He was not worried about towels. It was probably one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me. I need to pause here and say something very important. I have never done anything like that ever before or ever since. But I remember lying in bed once I could hear the bathroom door shut and the water start. I'm just like, wow, what have I done? I, through all of that, finally saw a version of myself that I knew was there, but a version that I had lost in the five years of that relationship. I saw a version of myself that was confident bold. Maybe just a little bit calculating with that whole Oxford comma addiction thing. Like, we'll call that calculating. But most importantly, I saw someone who was ready to push themselves outside of their comfort zone without losing themselves. And someone who I wish I could have become in that five-year relationship, but someone who had lost so much. And I finally saw the depth of how much I needed not just sex, but sexual connection and chemistry and a deeper kind of intimacy with someone who would understand what I wanted. I saw a whole bunch of my own monsters of shame and self-doubt, low self-esteem, and I saw how much I was willing to ignore in that relationship and how much I needed to learn about myself. In the end, I guess you could say he was the best monster that I had ever met. Thank you. Who's this? Who the fuck cares? Who is this? Who? Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? Who is it? Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck is she? Who are you? Who are you? Who the fuck are you? Don't know. Who the fuck knows? Anybody know who you are? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? Enlighten me. Please. Hi. I was standing in a line in the basement of Macy's Park Chester in the Bronx. A line of what seemed to be hundreds and upon hundreds of teenagers, all chanting and stomping their feet and cheering and waiting for something to happen. I couldn't see any grown-ups around at all, and all around me were some kids that I knew and some kids I didn't know, but I didn't speak to anyone because I was on a mission. Now, it was a little bit after 10 o'clock on a weekday morning, and maybe you think that we all should have been in school, And yeah, maybe some of us should have been and some of us would have been, except for one thing. 
Led Zeppelin was coming to Madison Square Garden and tickets were about to go on sale. Oh yes, people, in those pre-digital analog days, you had to listen to your favorite radio station. In my case, 95.5 WPLJ, past the J. You had to listen to this radio station day and night to hear the exact day and time when tickets would go on sale at your local Ticketron. And when they announced that day and time, you went to that place and you waited. And if it was a weekday, fuck school. <laughs> well, come on, who in their right mind would go to school when for $6.50 you could see Led Zeppelin, my favorite band in the world, play my favorite song in the world, Cashmere? <laughs> I didn't get a ticket that day. Not because they had sold out, but because the tickets had gone up a whole dollar from the year before. Even nosebleed seats were seven fifty, and I just didn't have the money. And it seemed like a lot of the other kids online were disappointed too, and some of them started throwing mannequins around and tagging graffiti on the walls, and I wasn't having any of that. I looked up at the clock, and I saw it was a little bit past 11, and I thought, well, hey, the day's not a total waste. I could go to some school. So I started walking from Parkchester to Wester Square in the Bronx, which is like three train stations away, and I'm taking my time. When I get to Wester Square train station, I hear this screaming and yelling. And then I look up the hill and I see a ring of cop cars around the school. And then I remembered what I had forgotten in my lust for Led Zeppelin. That day was Kill Whitey Day. I know, for most of you, your high school days of a halcyon, carefree time, filmed with warm, gauzy memories of homecoming dances and pep rallies and proms. Well, in the Bronx, at the high school I went to, Herbert H. Lehman, we too had events that we look forward to each spring. Kill Whitey Day and Kill Black and Puerto Rican Day. And every year, I got my ass kicked on both. Because with my red hair, freckles, and beige skin, no one could ever tell what the hell I was. Now, there have always been gangs in New York City. There were gangs in the 1950s, there are gangs now, but in the mid to late 1970s, New York City, and especially the Bronx, the teenage Bronx, was a borough divided and ruled to the South and West by the black and Latino gangs, the Mongol Brothers, the Savage Skulls, and the Savage Nomads, and to the East in the European Catholic white neighborhoods by the gangs, the Bronx Aliens, and the Bronx Ministers. And every high school in the Bronx would have its day when the two factions would go to war. And there was also a Kill Black and Puerto Rican day. It had already happened by this time, and I had been unscathed, luckily, but not so much the year before, where two Italian guys held me down and stabbed me in my arm because, hey, you know, they knew I was Puerto Rican. It was retaliation because they had gotten beaten up by two Mongol brothers and they were not brave enough to go to the Bronx River Projects to extract revenge. So of course, the best thing they could do would pick on five foot two, 106 pound me, right? They actually apologized to me later and told me that they hoped that I knew it wasn't personal. <laughs> but I still have the scar. 
Teenage New York was divided and ruled by these gangs, and you knew when your kill day would be. This information went down across race, ethnic, and neighborhood lines faster than text messaging goes through a college campus on a lockdown today. And if you did not show up to school on your kill day, your whole neighborhood would make you a pariah because you would be a wussy, you would be a doofus, you would get beat up by your own friends because you didn't have the heart to risk getting a beat down along with everyone else. So, to school, I had to go. And I kind of like, I'm going around the back where the security guards never knew there was a door always propped open, but all the kids knew there was. So I go in and then I start getting nervous because like if people are outside, maybe there's somebody inside that's waiting to jump me. So I decide that I need to have a cigarette like right now. So I go into the girls' bathroom and I go to the last stall and I assume the smoker's position. Now those of you who may have smoked cigarettes in high school may know this, you would climb on top of the toilet so your feet wouldn't show if somebody looked down and you would stand on the toilet like kind of crouched so your head didn't go over the top and you would take the cigarette and you'd wave it around and you blow smoke down and you wave it around and you'd blow smoke down and you'd repeat and you know I was like so nervous but then the act of smoking made me even more nervous let's, let's put it, the Newport light just wasn't doing it for me okay <laughs> hey uh, like I said I'm Latin we did menthol and then right before I was going to um Put it out, the door to the bathroom opened, and four black girls walked in. I knew they were black because of their names. Now the Keishas and Tawandas and Danae's of the next generations were either in the uterus or about to be born. But these girls were from a generation where the girls were still named after jewels and desirable attributes. Precious, crystal, unity, and Ruby. And these were fierce black pride lionesses. I know that what they caught, they would not release. And I had neglected to do the one thing that would have saved me, which would have been to like put the cigarette out, because this is what happened next. Yo, yo, Ruby, you see that blonde bitch? We knock her tooth out? Shoot. Oh, snap. You smell that? Who in here? And they went down the stalls, one by one, until they found me. And then they dragged me out into the bathroom. Now, was I going to fight them? One, definitely. <laughs> Two, maybe. But there were four of them. And these girls were tough girls. They were rumored to like have razor blades in their afros and have penny rolls wrapped in their pink, green, and blue bandanas. And there was nothing that I could do because there were four of them and they threw me onto the floor and they punched me and they kicked me and they penny rolled me and I tried to hide my face because I knew that's what you were supposed to do in the fight, hide your face. And how long did this go on? Too long. And then the bathroom door opened again and a girl walked in that we all knew. Her name, I remember her name was Nancy Jimenez. It, it would have been suicide to tell these girls that they were making a mistake because in a previous Kill Black and Puerto Rican Day or Kill Whitey Day, there was another girl that was actually half Irish and half Puerto Rican and she tried the front and she ended up basically being held down and raped with an umbrella. And that was not going to happen to me. So I took the beating and kept my mouth shut and then one of the girls said to Nancy, yo, Nancy, we got ourselves another white girl. You want some? And Nancy walks over, looks down and goes, what? I 
know her. That's Shell. I know her from homeroom. She's Puerto Rican. She just looks white. You girls are stupid. And Nancy Jimenez, wherever you are, I hope you're having the best life ever because you saved me. And she leaves the bathroom and suddenly four pairs of eyes see me as a human being for the first time. Unity, the one who was the leader, she starts walking around muttering, oh, yo, man, this ain't right. Oh, no, this, why didn't you say something? Wait, wait, you Puerto Rican? And I look up and I go, see. And she goes, oh, no, man, this ain't right. We got to do something. And then, then, you know, help her up. So, like, Precious and Crystal and Ruby, they help me up, and they straighten up my clothes, and my nose is bleeding, so they take the bandana, and they're daubing at me. And Unity is still saying, oh, no, man, this ain't right. We got to do something. I got it. Girls, give her your weed. (laughs) And then Precious and um, Ruby, one goes in the bra, One goes in the tube sock. They hand me a couple of joints rolled in like strawberry and banana, easy wide. (laughs) But the other one wasn't having it. Crystal? She started kind of like sidling out to get to the bathroom door, but she could not get away from Unity's watchful eye. Unity's fist shut out. Biff! And that girl's Afro pick just clattered onto the floor in front of me. And Unity went... I said, give her your weed, bitch, give it up. Crystal, once again, goes around her bra, then go checks her afro, and she hands me a half a sweat-stained nickel bag. And then Unity says, all right, all right, now we done you a solid, right? Like, you ain't gonna tell, okay? Like, you know, we, we, we tried to help you and everything. Oh, man, you should have said something. All right, girls, we gonna go kick some real white ass. And they just go, yeah. And they leave the bathroom. And I'm just like standing there holding a bandana with a bloody nose. And I'm just like, what has happened? And, you know, this was just the way things were back then. So you just accepted it. This was just the way life was, and you had to deal with it. And I was so torn because, like, well, what do I do? Do I try to get some friends and get them to beat them up? Or do I go to class and just, what do I do? And then I look at what I have in my two hands, and I know exactly what to do. I walked right back out of school and went to where the stoners hung out, this place called Zappa's Corner, and I sold all that weed, and I ran right back to Macy's, down into the basement of Tigatron before they closed at 4 o'clock p.m. That's right. The day wasn't a total waste after all, because I was in the nosebleed seats, and I got to see Led Zeppelin play Cashmere. Thanks, guys. This world will sound the same 
streets from which they sit away When all will be is risk this of course is jimmy plant and uh robert robert <laughs> oh fuck my ass robert 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 <laughs> robert plans and jimmy page they um reunited in like 94 or something like that for like an mtv unplugged sort of a deal and he still sounds just about that good you'd think there'd be more wear and tear on that voice over the years we just heard from michelle carlo remember you can find her at michellecarlo.com that's michelle with one l and look for her book fish out of agua it's so much fun now listen before that we heard a little interstitial which was sent in by one of you uh, J.J. Evans sent in the original tracks for that interstitial called Who the Fuck Are You or something like that. And Jeff Barr played with it a little bit more. We're inviting all Risk fans to send in audio sound collages, interstitials, also little Risk theme songs where, you know, it's less than 45 seconds long and it's a song that includes the word Risk if you're a band and you want to send us something like that. Email me at kevin at risk show.com and I'll send you the instructions for how to send us your audio interstitials or just random content we might want to include in interstitials or risk theme songs. All right, now hear this. Folks, we have a big, big announcement that I'm going to be making on the October 2nd episode. This is one of the most exciting things that's happened to Risk ever. But listen, we're going to be telling Patreon supporters before anyone else. So if you want to know what the big news is in advance, become a patron. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. You know, you can become a patron for any amount you choose per month. Plus, you get access to all kinds of bonus content, bonus stories and other content available only there, even ad-free episodes if you give $10 a month or more. Or, or more. You know what I mean. And finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and especially Instagram at risk show where we upload video announcements about this kind of stuff and interact with fans if you go to risk-show.com our website most of the pages on the site have a box on the right side of the frame that says risk newsletter 
right there. You can sign up for our newsletter and you'll always have a super quick and easy guide to all the latest risk news. Okay, it's been a long time since we've run this ridiculous version of our Stamps.com ad. Oh, a trip to the post office is hardly ever quick. Driving there, finding parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to get postage on demand. Buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or packet. Using your own computer and printer plus a digital scanner. Oh, you'll never waste time at the post office again. I use stamps.com and I'm obviously cool. Use the promo code RISK for a no-risk trial. $110 bonus offer. That's the digital scale and $55 free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Okay, enough of that madness. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes to us not from a Risk Live show, but actually from a show that was produced by our sister company, The Story Studio, that you can find at thestorystudio.org. This show was called In It Together, Stories of Strength in Diversity. And it was part of the Speak Up, Rise Up Festival that Asher Novik produced in Manhattan in August. Oh my gosh, such a wonderful evening of stories from people of different walks of life sharing about what it's like to be a part of this great big melting pot of a country. It always means the world to us here at risk to be seeking out and helping people to share their stories. People of color, uh, LGBT people, immigrants, people from different cultural backgrounds, people from different abilities, you know, uh, handicapped people, all sorts of stories. And that was a great evening of just those kinds of stories. This one comes to us from Mark Abbott. You can find him on Twitter at WhoIsMarkAbbott. That's Mark with a C. And here he is now with a story we call Son of a Cop. Where are you two going? Um, we're going to the bus stop. It's 5.30 in the morning. Where are you going at 5.30 in the morning? Well, my buddy and I, we go to high school in the city, so we have to catch the bus to get to the subway. Is that right? The next sound I hear is that of a car door unlocking. And on the other side of this police cruiser, the cop gets out, walks around to the back of the car, his hand on the butt of his gun. The passenger, his partner, who's been talking to me, gets out and does the same thing. I'm gonna need you two to put your bags on the ground and back up against the wall. Now my buddy Kewen looked like he was about to run and I grabbed him and I said, no, 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 just, I got this, don't worry about it. 
So the cop picks my book bag up. He starts to open that. Wait, wait, officer, wait a minute. I believe you need my permission before you can go in the bag. Oh, really? Well, who told you that? My father told me that. Oh, your father told you I needed to get your permission. And who exactly is your father? Uh, Sergeant Milton Abbott of the New York City Police Department Housing Division. Now, for a moment, he had this look like he was trying to figure out a math problem. <laughs> it was as if he couldn't figure out whether or not I was telling the truth and he should stop or she'd take this to the next level. I look at him and I said, well, listen, maybe you heard about him. In 1985, he had been shot in the line of duty out in Coney Island. Yeah, I don't, well, I tell you what, we can go right across the street where I live, he's probably up, and you can ask him if you are allowed to go into my personal belongings without my permission. Looks at me, looks back at his partner, hands me the bag back. You have a nice day. As he's going to the car, I'm like, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You wanna tell me why you stopped us? And he looks at me as if he wanted to say, motherfucker. Well, there have been some robberies in the neighborhood and well, you have a nice day. I was elated. My father had been on the force for years and the one thing about he and I, we loved the cop life. We watched every cop drama, we watched every cop movie. At one point I thought I wanted to be Roy Scheider because I loved every movie he was in as a cop and my dad being who he was, he told me everything about the police. I knew the Miranda rights at the age of 10 when I could say them properly. I played with his handcuffs. But when I told him what happened, he said, you know, the next time you get confronted by the police, don't be so verbose. Just do what they tell you and go from there. All right, Dad. And then my father said, well, wait a minute. Listen, do me another favor. Don't ever tell another cop that I'd been shot, okay? Don't ever tell that story. I'm like, okay. And then he says something to me that I didn't understand at the time, but he, the cops that stopped you, were they white? Yeah, why? Don't worry about it. Growing up as the son of a cop, I have very skewed idea of how life was. To me, it was cut and dry. The police were good, you had your bad guys. There was no line in the sand. That's how it was. My father, who had been shot in 85, took down a suspect who shot him at point blank range. So as far as I was concerned, he was a hero. And there was never any reason I ever had to doubt that the police were good until Rodney King. By that point, I was in college and had witnessed this on TV. And I remember sitting there watching and going, well, there we go. See, he's not listening to the police. That's why they're beating him like that. You see, if he just stay down on the ground like they told him. And I called my dad and we started to talk about it. And he said, you know, that's not how police work works. I said, yeah, but you know, the guy, he wouldn't, he wouldn't stay down. He said, you know what, Mark, listen, you're getting older now. And I'm gonna need you to take a long, hard look at how life really works. You can't view the police the same way anymore. You have to be 
cognizant of who they are, what they say to you. Because what you see and what we grew up watching on TV is not the same thing in real life. But I need you to be careful, please. All right, Dad, we're good. A year later, the riot would break out in LA. And in Atlanta, our students from our school had gone downtown to protest the entire incident with the police getting off. Unfortunately for them, the neighborhood thugs went along with them and tore up downtown Atlanta. So the next day when the students decided they wanted to march again, they were met with a wall of police and riot gear. And my father saw it on television. He immediately calls me and he goes, listen to me. I'm watching TV, do not go outside. Okay, not a problem. No, listen to me, do not go out there. Do not try and do anything, stay in your room. But I went out there. And as I'm walking down the street, I hear it. I hear the helicopters. I hear the students screaming. I see at the corner students throwing rocks and running the opposite way. And I'm running down there because I have to see this firsthand. And as I turn the corner, this thing like a demon with long fingernails and razor blades goes up into my nose behind my eyes and starts scratching as I start taking in tear gas because I'd never experienced that before. And I'm coughing and I'm wheezing and I'm looking and I'm trying to see and it's just chaos. There's rocks being thrown. There's a wall of police moving forward. I'm watching friends, fellow classmates getting beat down, getting dragged into cars, being stopped, being pushed into the bushes. And all of a sudden you start hearing and that's the tear gas cans flying over us and, and you see the smoke and I'm trying and I see these guys and I'm like if I could just make it past that wall to the command center on the other side I'm the son of a cop I can talk to them I, I can try and figure something out and I make my way around these guys and I get up on the hill and there are these cops all these white cops standing together and I start to walk over and I'm like hey hey let me talk to you and the cop looks at me grabs his baton and goes back up and I'm like, wait a minute, I need to, you need to back the fuck up. I'm like, no, wait a minute, my father's a cop. I don't give a shit what your father is. You get the fuck back or I beat your ass and I put you on a bus and take you downtown. And for the first time in my life, I'm afraid of the police. And I realized that being the son of a cop means absolutely nothing in this situation. So I turn around and I start to head back down and there's one male dorm, freshman male dorm on campus that sits in the middle of this street and the cops have surrounded this building and they're firing tear gas into the building. And as the students are running out, they're beating them as they come out into the street, grabbing them, putting ties behind them and throwing them on a bus and hauling them downtown. And I'm watching this and I'm confused because I, I can't get this madness and what's going on. And I look over and I see the chief of police standing there and he looks just like my father a black man in command. And I hear my father in my head, don't go out there, don't go out there. And I realize he didn't want me to see this, not this way. After that, my complete respect for the police changed. And I understood what he meant by being cognizant of what was going on around you. I have a daughter now and there's going to be a day where she's going to come to me and we're going to have to have this conversation. And the one thing I do know that I'm going to tell her is that there are police that represent 
the finest. But you, like me, need to know where the line in that sand is drawn. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Beyonce behind me now, and I am now going to list where Risk is appearing next on September 26th. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That is our very special Risk slash body storytelling show. Body storytelling from San Francisco, that means Dixie De La Tour, will be teaming up with us. We're going to have Melina Williams-Haas there, Bex Caputo, Dick Wound, Corinne Fisher of the Guys We Fucked podcast. I mean, that's just going to be an outrageously fun show. It's all kinky sex stories. September 26th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On October 21st, we're at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. That's all going to be scary stories for Halloween. October 21st at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. October 22nd is when we are at Littlefield in Brooklyn. On October 22nd, we won't be at the Bell House. We'll be at Littlefield in Brooklyn. And that, again, will be all scary stories. In fact, we're still taking pitches for that one. So if you live near New York City and you have a good scary story that you might want to share on October 22nd at Littlefield in Brooklyn, pitch us. Now, here's a bunch of shows that we're still taking pitches for and the way to pitch us is to go to risk-show.com slash submissions there's all kinds of tips for how to pitch us there on that page november 3rd we are in baltimore maryland the theme that night is obsession come on out on november 3rd baltimore on november 9th we're in chicago illinois the theme that night is revealing. November 10th, we're in Madison, Wisconsin. For the first time ever, we're in Madison. On November 10th, the theme that night is huge. On November 11th, we're in Detroit, Michigan. The theme that night is surprise. November 11th, Detroit, the theme is surprise. 
on December 2nd, we're in Phoenix, Arizona. For the first time ever, December 2nd, Phoenix, Arizona. The theme that night is jaw-dropping. So once again, pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. And be sure to check out our sister company, thestorystudio.org, because that is where you can learn how to do all this storytelling stuff. You can do one-on-one training over Skype. You can look up our in-person workshops with groups. Uh, You can do online training where it's just, you know, you download video courses and take it in your own time. Or you might want to hire us for one of our storytelling for business workshops for your staff we've worked with google and pfizer and citibank and american express and usa today i mean the the list just goes on and on find us at the storystudio.org otherwise look for us on social media at risk show folks today's the day take a risk Folks, this is the part of the episode, it's the hidden track. We call it the Easter egg, and it's, you know, end of the, oh, um, pardon me, I, that was kind of a hidden Easter egg itself, right? God, that, that vegetable tikka masala must have, oh, you know, maybe this isn't the best time to, God, what the fuck is going on with me? Yeah, it probably best not to do an Easter egg this week. Um, I th- oh God, that scared me. Um, I, I feel like I should get to to a bathroom. Oh, beg pardon. Um, how about oh. I may need some help here, people. (laughs) What have I done to deserve this? (laughs) Somebody! Somebody help me!